Welcome to Group Talk, a monthly podcast centered around strategic ideas for leaders of small groups. Whether you're stuck in your ministry or you're just looking for practical wisdom to help you in your ministry context, the Small Group Network truly believes that we are better together. Let's get ready for this month's Group Talk with our host, Carolyn Takeda, Executive Director of Small Groups at Calvary Community Church in Westlake Village, California, and a part of the leadership team of the Small Group Network. to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, 60 million Americans experience a mental health condition every year. That is one in four adults and one in 10 children, which is astounding. This affects people of every race, age, religion, economic status. Whether we're aware of it or not, we all know someone who's living with some form of mental illness. They're in our families, they're in our churches, and certainly they're in our small groups. So what can the church do to help? And why is this issue so critical for the church and by extension for our small groups to address? So how can we equip our small group leaders to love and support people struggling with mental illness in their groups? Well, I'm Carolyn Takeda, and this is Group Talk. Welcome to the program. Today, I am so thrilled because we have a very special guest with us. Um, I'm with Kay Warren. Thank you, Kay, so much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for the invitation. Well, Kay, as all of you probably know, is the co-founder of Saddleback Church in Lake Forest, California, with her husband, Rick Warren. Um, as well as the founder and advocate for the HIV and AIDS initiative at Saddleback and around the world. She's an international speaker, a best-selling author, a Bible teacher, and Kay's latest book, Choose Joy Because Happiness Isn't Enough, was published in 2012. Um, after their son Matthew took his life in 2013, the Warrens revealed that Matthew had, had a lifelong struggle with mental illness, and since then, Rick and Kay have been committed to raising awareness about mental illness, reducing the stigma that many experience, and equipping local churches and families around the world to effectively minister to those living with mental illness. And to that end, they have a conference coming up that we'll talk a lot more about um, called the Mental Health and the Church Conference coming up October 7th and 9th, and we'll dive into that in a bit. But I'm so excited to have this conversation with Kay because mental illness affects all of us um, and definitely affects our small groups. So, Kay, let's start off with this. You know, there's a lot of definitions that we work with around mental health. Um, how would you define mental health in the context of our conversation and the context of your upcoming conference? Well, mental health, just to put it simply, is um, an ability to function and navigate well in the various domains of your life. Can you function well at work, in your relationships, um, with a stable sense of who you are. Uh, mental health has to do with a resilience to change, being able to adapt to stress and, and to change and a variety of circumstances. And when people start to experience difficulty, um, maybe a lack of stability in, in their relationships or um, they're not functioning well at home, school, um, in their jobs, if they are not, if, if stress and changing circumstances are creating problems, then we start seeing what we would call mental illness. Um, so it's, it's a continuum. It's, it's not, there's not a blood test right, or right. a brain scan or, you know, a PET scan or there's not, there's not a medical test you can take to say, well, this person has this mental illness. It's more looking at how a person is reacting to change, how they're reacting mm -hmm. to stress, how are they coping at work, at home and at school. And, um, and then we start making, we, I'm not a mental health professional, <laughs> but professionals start making, um, evaluations sure. based on, on those criteria. So then mental health issues can arise even as a chronic condition, such as with your son, or it can be episodic? Well, we, we tend to say, and that's where it gets a little tricky, because if you lose your job tomorrow, you're going to probably feel depression. Oh, for sure, yeah. And grief. 
and probably some anxiety. Um, if you break up in a, a relationship, breaks up, a, you know, of uh, someone's not married or there's a divorce. I mean, there's going to be enormous trauma, grief yes. and trauma and sadness and and anxiety. So those are what those would fall within what we would say a normal range. This continuum of um, a response to life circumstances. But when that response, if somebody after six months mm -hmm. maybe of losing their job is can't get out of bed in the morning, that's when you start thinking, okay, that's a depression that's probably moved beyond a quote, normal response to loss, and now maybe they need some help, and it's moving into maybe something that medication sure. could possibly help. So it's a continuum, and um, everybody is going to have negative or painful responses to painful circumstances. It's when those reactions and responses um, don't, there's no resilience, you don't get better after time, you can't start moving forward again, you can't thrive, then, then we start thinking of, of mental illness. That's a really helpful definition, I think. We've all been there, we've all experienced right. it, we've all been around people who have. Um, you know, when I started researching this, I was uh, astounded by the statistics on this. Like, one statistic is that 50% of adults will develop depression, anxiety, self-harm, eating disorder, bipolar disorder, PTSD, borderline personality disorder, or some other mental illness in their lifetime. 50%. Yeah, I didn't believe it when I read it. I really didn't. I thought it was a typo. Yeah. I had to go check it out for myself. <laughs> I had to go look it up on the on the NAMI, uh, National Alliance on Mental Illness mm -hmm. website, because I just, I had never heard that. I hadn't either. But, right. um, but it's corroborated in several different places, and so it's staggering. So, okay, we both grew up in the church. But yet we haven't heard this. Why? Why is the church so kind of behind on this whole well, issue? Well, I think you know my dad was a pastor, and I did grow up in church. And I think that my dad was dealing on a regular basis with people who were living with mental illness. Yeah. We just didn't know what to call it. Mm -hmm. And I remember the term growing up. Somebody had a nervous breakdown. Yes. Well, we don't even use that <laughs> term anymore. But a nervous breakdown was something private and very quiet, and you didn't talk about it, and you whispered about it. And that person was no longer really given much, um, I don't know, you're kind of suspicious of this person or they're crazy. Or it's going to be contagious in yeah, some way. Yeah, it's contagious. So there was, there's a lot of stigma around mental illness. And um, I think we just didn't know what to call it. We didn't know what to deal with it. I, I've lived with depression my whole life. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know I was depressed when I was a teenager. I didn't even know that term. I just knew that there were times when... I really didn't want to interact with my family, right, where I withdrew right. into my room, where I would think sad thoughts. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe nothing had happened, but I mean, you know, nothing externally had happened sure. to cause that response. I was living with depression and I didn't even know it. So I think we've, we're a lot more educated now about mental illness, so we're kind of on the lookout for it. And um, so it's always been there. <laughs> it's nothing new. Yeah, it's just finally, though, there's some attention um, shed on it. I find it puzzling that. Um, and I grew up in churches where we never talked about it, very similar. In fact, if, if I was expressing um, any feelings of depression or anyone, you know, um, around us, the leaders and the pastors would say, you know, rejoice always, pray constantly. Um, and it was just, let's just stay happy, clappy Christians. And that just did such a disservice. Or just pray. Or just pray. Right. And you, you don't know, have enough faith. You don't have enough faith. Some, exactly. Something. And there was such a disconnect. You just trust Jesus enough. Right. Just you won't me. feel sad. You won't feel depressed. You won't feel anxious. Um, and, and those messages from the church have created um, a barrier to people Huge. talking about what's really going on. And it's in added their lives. pain. Oh, it adds pain. And it, and it adds, it adds shame mm -hmm. on top of pain. Yeah. And when we have to live with shame on top of pain, 
it's no wonder that people um, either just try to put on the complete, as you say, happy face and fake it right. at church, or they leave church, right. or um, some of them get to the place where they take their lives. Uh, I right. mean, it's the reality is that mental illness is pervasive and it's painful, and the church has not really done a very good job um, which helping is, people. Which is surprising because when you look at the Bible, God's pretty open with, you know, with all of that. Well, hello, read the Psalms. <laughs> David's talking right? about depression. Um, Paul talks about that he, you know, despaired of life. He said we were so down and discouraged that we despaired of life. We have Jesus in the garden right. um, saying, you know, my soul is, is so in agony. And um, Elijah, you know, under, sure, the, sure. under, under the, the tree. Under the tree. <laughs> so there's so many places where, um, look at Saul, you know, some of the struggles that, that Saul had. Um, I know the Bible talks about um, that, that there was, you know, a, a, a oppression, demon oppression. And I think that's where it's gotten really messy in the church through the years mm -hmm. is looking maybe at people with mental illness and thinking, if, if anything, they've got a demon. You know, we go really to that place of, uh, you know, that there's it's a demon tormenting them. And I absolutely believe in spiritual warfare. And I do believe, I think what I would say is I believe we're whole people. Right. And something can go wrong at every level. You know, we are a body, mind, mm -hmm. and, and a soul. And something can happen in your body. And when your body goes haywire, it's going to show itself. It's going to manifest. Um, if there's something going wrong in your soul, it's going to show up if there's something that's going on um, in your emotions. And, and so as whole beings, yes, there can be demonic oppression. Sure. There can be brain dysfunction. There can be biochemistry. There can be trauma. Right. If someone's been, you know, experienced sure. a, a trauma, there's going to be a, a mental reaction. And as the church, we've just focused pretty narrowly, narrowly on a spiritual dimension right. and ignoring all the other reasons and maybe that the intellectual yeah exactly Those two probably yes and 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 not dealing with people as whole beings and i think one of the the good things that's happened um at least at this point in time is that we're more open to thinking of mental illness as an illness right, right. but here's the flip side of that if the good side of that is we're acknowledging it's an illness mm -hmm. like diabetes or heart disease that the right. brain doesn't function right the chemistry is off and we think of it as an illness but as a result, I think sometimes then the church goes, oh, well, it's an illness. There's nothing I can do. You know, we're the church. Um, we don't do medical right. diseases, you know. And so we look at it as a person who has an illness in capital letters mm -hmm. when really we need to shift it and look at it as a person who has an illness. Because we as the church can address the personhood, the soul, the care of a, of a, of a person with an illness better than, than the government, better than a psychiatrist, better than a psychologist. Don't misunderstand me, though. There's absolutely a place for psychiatry, psychology, social work, sure. all of those things. But we're whole beings. The point is the church can deal with the soul and the church can do practical things for people. But we also need to bring in the medical community. It's not just the medical community and it's not just sure. the church. It's actually bringing the together. two together for the whole person. Right. And that's, that's a new way of thinking about mental illness. It makes sense, um, especially because a lot of people in the community are reaching out to the church and then maybe their first stop, especially we have in our church a um, minister on call and basically 24-7 and most of the calls are not from people in our congregation, they're people in the community 
at, at that moment and where they're contemplating um, self-harm or where, where they're just really down, they don't know who else to call right. and we have that number. Well, there's studies that, that show about 25% of people will come to their pastor, their priest, their rabbi um, before they will go to a mental health professional because they assume that they're going to receive a warm welcome, that, that somebody's going to receive them warmly and with care. And it doesn't always happen that way, but there's at least a perception out there. Um, but the, on the flip side again, 75% of people don't know, have a feeling that, that the church is not going to be the place for well, them. Because Either we way, we have to be ready. And we don't have a good reputation for no. that. So we know, we've established that this is a really messy area. This is an uphill battle for the church. And yet you and your husband have taken this on. Um, and so what made you, what compelled you actually to jump into such a sticky and challenging issue and take this on? Well, I say we didn't choose it, it chose us. When our son, Matthew, um, took his life two and a half years ago, we were immediately thrust into the world of, of mental illness in a way that we didn't ask for and didn't want. But we couldn't, it's as much for Matthew's honor and um, as a tribute to our son who lived with mental illness to say um, the church has to, has to speak up, the church has to tear down the stigma because Matthew lived with the stigma of mental illness. And growing up in church, there were some people who were very kind to him and people who gave him a lot of grace. And there were other people that put heavier burdens on him, right. you know, down to that, you're the pastor's son. You should or, be perfect. Yeah, you should be perfect. <laughs> or um, what's the matter with your family that, you know, you have a mental illness or um, the old pray, you know, pray it away um, strategy, which seldom works for anything. Um, and so Matthew lived with, with stigma and with shame, and um, we wanted to help other families. We wanted other children to receive correct diagnoses early because, you know, you were quoting some statistics. Um, it's actually one in five. That 60 million, <clears throat> pardon me, who are living with mental illness right now, that's for adults. Right. Actually, one in five children oh, also. Yes, okay. that's, a, that's only an adult statistic. Okay. So in addition, one in five children are living with a mental illness, and half of all chronic mental illness will develop by the age of 14. Wow, 14. By the age of 14. So, really so our children's ministry, our youth groups, our college ministry, our adults are already wow. facing people living. And we wanted to, um, to help them. We wanted to maybe prevent some other families from living with the pain that both Matthew did and the pain that, that we have experienced as survivors of, mm -hmm. of suicide loss. So often, I think God does use our, our pain and our weaknesses um, and for His glory. And um, mm -hmm. because you guys have been willing to be generous um, with that, I think the church benefits. I've heard you say in an interview, and I was so intrigued by this, that people with mental health issues are a gift mm -hmm. um, and a blessing to the church. Tell me more about that. Well, it, it's, it's looking at it through a different lens. We, those of us who might not live with um, a pervasive mental health issue, tend to look at those who do as, um, uh, if we want them in our churches at all, you know. It's a burden. Yeah, it's, it's a burden as someone that has to be taken care of, um, as someone that um, is, is a taker rather than a contributor, mm -hmm. and yet that God has given spiritual gifts equally across the board, and if you're a mentally ill believer in Jesus Christ, you have spiritual gifts, and, mm -hmm. and they need to be brought into the body. 
I, I think when I talk to some people who live with um, pretty severe depression and have lived with depression for a long time that doesn't seem to lift, um, and yet those people tell me how much they cling to God, how much they are longing for heaven, because they have to. And so I want to hear from somebody, I want to hear from the person who says, I live with chronic depression and I still trust God. Because what's it like to, to trust God when it never feels good? And I don't know what that's like. I struggle with a low level of depression, but I frequently have times where I'm absolutely euphoric in, in my right. walk with God and, 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 and relationships. But when somebody's living with that terrible depression and they still say, God is my hope, God is my savior, I want to hear what they have to say because they have something to teach me yes. about walking with God in the dark times that I don't know, and I want to know it. And and then also, you know, Bonhoeffer talked so much about how the how we need each other, that the weak That's and the so strong, that we need each link, the weak links and the strong links, um, and the body analogy, the, you know, the little toe right, right. as well as the <laughs> right. brain and the torso. We, we need every single part of the body. And when we look at people living with mental illness, not as a burden, not as a project to fix, yes. but, our, but as persons to love and to elevate and to incorporate and embrace fully in the body of Christ, um, then we more fully represent what the body of Christ is meant to be anyway. It's, it's when it's only the strong mm -hmm. that, that are leading or the strong that are up front or the strong that are getting all of the attention, then the weaker members of the body can feel like they don't belong. And right. that's the opposite message of, of the gospel. The gospel is inclusive. Yes. It's the weak, the strong, the broken, the, the healthy, the geeks, the, the, <laughs> the athletes, you know, the brainiacs, the idiots. I mean, it's like it's, it's the whole spectrum of who we are as human beings are meant to be incorporated into the body of Christ. Um, I, I've just been reading this amazing book that I really recommend. It's called Resurrecting the Person. Hmm. It's a friendship and, and mental illness. It's by John Swinton. He's a professor at, in uh, the University of Aberdeen. And he talks about how when Jesus had the opportunity to define his relationship to us, the, the term that he chose to call us is friend right. in John 15, 15, and that, that we are to offer radical friendship to each other in the body of Christ so different than friendship yes. that's about an inch deep that's based on, oh, you like that? Oh, I like that. Or you're right. such a likable person. Let's be friends. Right. Exactly. Let's both fake it together. Oh, well, <laughs> or just, it's just, it's based on the other person's likability mm -hmm. or what you have in common. Well, when crises hit our lives, um, that definition of friendship is not going to be adequate. And right. to, to friend each other the way that God has friended us. So when we look at people with mental illness as friends, um, not trying to fix them, mm -hmm. but friend them. Um, That's a very different paradigm. It's a different paradigm. And we're not there. I don't think that Saddleback's there. That's where we're headed. Mm -hmm. I don't know many churches that are really radically loving right. like that, but that's our calling. You know, it's a great transition because I, I don't know a lot of churches that are radically loving that way. Um, and Saddleback will be a pioneer again for that for us. Um, but I know groups that are. Um, and you and Rick have uh, been huge proponents of the small groups ministry. Um, and, you know, I know that we 
in small groups, uh, ministry world, we refer to Rick as like the champion for, oh, goodness. for small groups. He's ridiculous when he starts on it. You, know, you gotta be in a small group. Yes. You gotta be in a small in group. Fact, I'm like, oh, here he goes again. <laughs> but it's such a, that's such a gift. And he probably doesn't realize how that multiplies. There's a video of him talking about small groups and there's probably about 50 clips with different shirts. That's how you know they're different oh. times. <laughs> Basically saying the exact same yes. thing about small groups. Yep. And, that, and when that, that cycle through, especially for some of our listeners who are in churches where their senior pastor is not as supportive, mm-hmm. um, he's kind of become yeah. kind of, you know, a big supporter. They, they go, okay, there are pastors that do this. And But what I love is not only does he preach it from the pulpit and you as well, but that you guys actually live it. And I know that you've been part of a small group for decades now. So share a little bit about that. What, yeah. How did that come about? And specifically with this issue, how have they helped you guys get um, through this really difficult time? Yeah. Well, we, <clears throat> I would say be persistent. We've tried a couple different groups. Uh, the particular group we're in now, we've been together, I think we're coming up on 14 years. Wow. Um, but we had been in another group that had some other staff members in it, and we loved them, and you know we laugh about it now, but it didn't work. We tried it in the middle of the day, and the guys would come from work, and then the wives would join in, and the guys were coming because they were coming right from work and had to go back to work, yeah. they were so still in, they were in yeah. work mode yeah. and they're or they're figuring out projects and what's next and it just didn't work. <laughs> it just didn't work. So we, then we weren't in a group for several years. And then when we launched, I think it was 50 Days of Love, like 14 years ago, a, a campaign that that we did in our church and and everybody needed to be in a small group. So it's kind of like okay, we got to try this again. <laughs> so we tried it again with a different set of people and we just clicked. We just clicked. We're all either um, on staff or active in ministry. We have we have a really pretty high octane group, meaning somebody on any given day is traveling somewhere else. Right. It's it's a very um, leadership heavy group, and so it makes for some interesting dynamics in our small group. A lot of alphas. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> a lot of extroverts. Um, so we. Um, and we sometimes laugh at our own curriculum. It makes it a sure. little difficult because we're the ones who've yes. taped it so that yes. we sit there and pick it apart and go, oh, man, I can't believe you wore that shirt again. Or, oh, I'm glad or... it's not just me. My small group does that to me every no. fall when they see, they're like, what's happening with your hair? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or we'll say, you needed a little more powder. You're pretty shiny, you know. So we, we pick our stuff apart. Um, but we, we have a commitment to each other. And a few years ago, after we'd been together for a few years, we actually... Um, had the, you know, the, what do they call it, DTR, the defining the relationship. (laughs) We had a DTR conversation as a small group, which was, okay, we got together out of, here was this campaign, and everybody was supposed to be in a a small group, and we've done it now for a couple years, and our lives are busy, and we've all got, you know, between us, I think we had something like 20 kids, um, and everybody was just going in different directions. It's like, do we really want to stay together? And I had just finished reading Larry Crabb's um, book, The Safest Place yes, on, on Earth. Earth. Yeah. And, um, and it stirred such a hunger in me to good. say, I, this is who I want to be with. I recognize that there are some intractable, intractable problems in my life mm-hmm. that I've tried to work on. I've been to counseling. Rick and I have been to marriage counseling. And there's some issues in my life that they're just not budging. And after I read Larry Crabb's book, uh, Safest Place on Earth, and he sets this model out for how sometimes perhaps maybe God intended that some of the deepest problems that we have would not be addressed unless we were in that community. So we started talking about that, and it's like, you know, no, I, I need you in my life. I want to be the woman God wants me to be, and I'm not going to get there if I'm not with you guys. If, if we're not wow. together, if you don't 
If we don't build the kind of relationships where you can challenge me, where you can push me, where you can call me on the carpet, where you can grace me when I need it, then I'm never going to reach the potential that God has for me. And so we looked at each other and kind of said, no, we're in this for life. We're in this for life. God willing, we're in this for the rest of our lives. So that commitment was well before a huge... It was before Matthew died. Yeah, but in our group, at the time there were five couples. One couple did end up moving with a job change um, back east, and we decided not to replace. We decided to keep just as four couples rather than five Um, because how difficult it is to build intimacy and to stay up with each other's lives with so much traveling and different things. But within our group, I mean, multiple bouts of cancer, you know, heart attacks, cancer, death, you know, suicide of a child, death of parents, um, death of siblings, um, near near divorce, marriage, massive marriage problems, rebellious children, um, premature birth, brain wow. tumor. I mean, wow. our families have just gone through the ringer, and we have shown up for each other. And so when Matthew died, um, one of our small group members, uh, one family was in Spain. They had just flown to visit their daughter who was studying abroad. Um, one family was in the mountains for the weekend, you know, two and a half, three hours away. And so, and then the other couple we called them and they were there. Well, the couple who had just gone to the mountains turned right around and came right back. The couple that had flown to Spain caught the next flight wow. back and came to wow. be with us. And so um, they spent the night with us the first few nights. They were We couldn't go back to our home by ourselves. Sure, they sure. were with us. Um, I would say our small group deliberately and intentionally chose to let our grief become theirs. Mm-hmm. And because of that, Theirs has not been a um, uh, quick commitment. They're, they're in it with us. They have grieved with us. And that's probably one of the most powerful things that I think a group can do um, for and with each other in the hardest of times is to let that what is wounding the other person wound you. And when you let the other person's wounds wound you, then you're not going to walk away from that. You're going to stay. And they haven't looked at us and said, hey, it's been six months, or it's been a year, or it's been two years, or it's been two and a half years. You know, when are you guys going to be yourselves again? They understand we will never be exactly as we were, but they love us for who we are They give you the space. They have given us the space to grieve. They've grieved with us. The girls and I have, they go with me to the cemetery Mm -hmm. frequently. They bought me, it sounds so strange, I suppose, but it's such an evidence of their fact that they get it. Mm -hmm. They bought me a cemetery bag, meaning all the things that I take to the cemetery um, when just like things to clip the grass and Mm -hmm. and some granola bars and some clean. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a, it is a profound entering in um, to our loss. And I could never, ever, ever express uh, our gratitude and how they have been, uh, they have been our rock. I think it's, I mean, that's an incredible story. What underlines it, though, is the commitment. And you made that commitment way before. Mm-hmm. They made the commitment way before. And you would do the same for them. With So you make the commitment without knowing what exactly. that, you know. And I think in our culture with the consumerism and whatnot, people want the group that is all perfect and they want to get to that level, right. like now. Right. And that takes years it and takes years to years. build. The other thing I'd love to ask about is... Um, we often hear from senior, uh, from small group pastors that 
their senior pastors are reluctant or people in high level of leadership at the church are reluctant to be in a group because they feel like it won't be a safe place. Um, and that it'll, they'll end up, even if they're not the one leading the group, they'll end up defaulting as the leader um, or something about it will get gossiped about. There was a church where they had a small group and then they like, you know, were so critical that the pastor was demoralized and it was horrible for them. I mean, you hear a lot of these stories. And so um, what would you say to a senior leader that is afraid perhaps or concerned about being in a group and being that vulnerable oh and I I understand I, I completely it's a legitimate fear it's not one of those fears that I could go oh come on you know right. just no, take it the is. risk Definitely it's, legitimate. it's legitimate and people have been wounded and burned and um, as you say um, even betrayed yes. you know by members in their small group it is a risk Anytime you join a small group for anybody, it is a risk. You're, you're, they it feel is like a they risk. have more to lose. They do, they do, and that's why I would say even in the early years before we had this particular small group, we tried to find that kind of community with other pastors outside of Saddleback. And so Rick and I were both part of some couples groups, mm -hmm. people in ministry, right? But they didn't belong to Saddleback, and so that added a little other layer. Yeah. No, it actually made it a little safer. Because it felt like the, these were people who knew what it was like to be in ministry. Sure. We weren't comparing. We, the, the time together wasn't about, well, at our church this weekend, right. we did this. Well, we have this. It was about <laughs> who we were as people and where we were as parents and partners in, you know, in marriage. And um, because we all shared that similar kind of commitment, we were together for two or three years, mm -hmm. you know, which is a pretty good time for. Um, good run, yeah. yeah. And um, so I would encourage um, pastors to choose wisely. Choose very carefully. Never, ever, ever be in a small group with a brand new Christian as a as the pastor because they don't have the maturity, the, the maturity yet to to deal with your feet of clay, your brokenness, your weakness, right. and it will be disillusioning, and it could be confusing, um, and yet you need the safety, right. you know, of being able to share the fact that you have feet of clay that what you about, are human. What about with other staff? Uh, you just have you do have to be careful. I'm not saying it's impossible, um, but you do have to be careful. You do have to choose wisely, and um, and so sometimes there is safety in being in a in a community that's outside of your own um, church. Great. So so that meets your need for um, vulnerability and authenticity right, right. and and encouragement, but isn't with somebody that you actually that you ultimately have the power right. to hire or fire. That's, that's messy. It makes it hard for the person who is under you mm -hmm. because they know you can fire them if they share their vulnerability right. and then you have the vulnerability as the pastor or the leader of going, well they could spread stuff about me. It's oh man, it's so messy. It's so messy. <laughs> but it is worth it's worth it. Even if you get burned, um, I would still pursue it because God has intended that this be a place for us. Right. So um, don't give up the effort to try it, and don't decide that you're going to try to live in isolation, holding on to your, um, your cares, your burdens. Mm -hmm. just, like, just like in our group, I realized I wasn't going to be fully who God intends me to be without this deep community. Um, I would say the same is true for every pastor or leader. You're not going to be all that God intends you to be unless you have that deep community. And if you can't find it or feel safe in your church, look for it elsewhere, but get it. Yeah, and I, that's really good work because I think most small group pastors would really like their senior pastors to be in a group, but then there's all this added piece. I think the idea of going outside of the group or maybe um, 
uh, allowing the pastor to choose who the pe people are. You, you just can't populate a random group no. and, and stick your senior no. leader in there. No. Um, that's that's not unfair gonna, to everybody. That, that is. That's going to not work well for anyone. And yeah. so, um, but it's, I think, for... You know, in theory, that might sound good, but in reality, it doesn't <laughs> right. really work. Right. You'd have to have a special kind of person and persons for in that group for that to work. Absolutely. So I meant the random right, selection the random of selection. it. Yeah, that, that would be for the For the senior leader is not... Not it's ideal. Not it's not yeah. ideal. But I know that a lot of us have probably told our senior pastors, hey, you know, Rick Warren's in a small group. <laughs> you need to be in a small group. I think, group. in fact, I think Rick has done that. In oh, many probably. Conferences, probably. Well, he, he can do it. He can get away with it, he, you know. He can, but so I, when the rest of use it as leverage, right. it's not quite It's not necessarily even have to be a small group. I think I just encourage our senior leadership to be in a place where they can be vulnerable and safe. Absolutely. And that they can show their feet of clay. Absolutely. Um, okay, so... Um, this is a little bit of a side point, but I wanted you to talk about it because, as we said, we, we live in such a broken world and it's so messy. Um, I saw a video you posted about what not to say to people who are grieving. Um, and it was just a five-minute thing, and we'll upload it with this content as well. But uh, would you share some quick pointers on what not to say to someone who's dealing with loss um, of some sort? And then, what, um, and then the flip, what can we say? Yeah, um, people mean well. You know, I have to start from the place of people mean well. And I had to tell myself that over and over and over and over again. They mean well, they just don't understand. So let me tell you, first of all, what you can say if somebody's gone through a divorce, if somebody has died, um, whatever. There, you cannot go wrong by saying, I'm so sorry for your loss. But we can't just leave it there, though. We seem to oh, no. have to want to oh, yeah. say something no, yeah, after. Yeah, no, we have to augment that with our, you know, and that's where Job's friends got into yes. trouble. They were fine when they just came and sat sure. with him for seven right. days. But they got bored. But then they opened their mouths, <laughs> and then that was where the trouble started. But, uh, yeah, to just tell somebody, I'm so sorry for your loss, it, it acknowledges the, that something has happened. It acknowledges that it's worth grieving about. And it, it says to them, I am entering in, in this moment, with you in your sorrow. And um, that, I have yet to meet anybody who's experienced traumatic loss who's been offended by that. However, if you go in the other directions of things like saying, um, well, at least, which is probably the worst offender of all, well, at least you had Matthew for 27 years. Well, yes, I'd like him for the rest of his natural lifetime. Thank you very much. Well, at least... Um, at least he didn't hurt anybody else. Someone actually said that to me. Wow. And I'm like, yes, and I'm so grateful. And boy, did I not need you to say that to me. Sure. Um, or people will say to um, younger, I mean, we're in our 60s, but, so, but people will say to friends of mine who've lost children, well, at least you can have more children. Yeah. Thank you. I want this child. Mm -hmm. Or at least you can get married again, you know, if somebody's right. lost a spouse. It's just the wrong, anything you, anything you preface with at least is a way of minimizing that other person's grief. It contains it so that you, the person offering right. a condolence, feel comfortable. And, and I, like I said, I keep saying I know they mean well, but just throw away at least. Something else that people say is, um, well, God must have needed him more than you did. That's the Christian version of the at least. Yeah, and it's, it's it, you're like, Really? God needed him more, so my son shot himself. I don't think those two things go together. So they'll say, God needed him more, or people will say, well, now they're an angel. Um, Which isn't even biblical, It's right? not biblical, <laughs> no. Um, or things like, well, it must have been God's will. 
Yes, and, that's um, a stinger. Which is the one that, that and some of the oh. things that people say, there's some truth to. Is our God in control? Yes. Our God is in control. Stephen, Chap Stephen Curtis Chapman um, did a CD after his little girl right. was killed, uh, which I, I, I have played that CD. If it were a record, it would have holes in it. I have played it and played it and played it. And one of the things, some of the lyrics, he says, this is not how it should be. This right. is not how it could be. But right. This is how it is. And our God is in control. And, and that is true, but, but the person who is in grief needs to kind of come to that oh, through no. their own process as opposed to us superimposing our answers, our trite statements, our theology. Is God in control? Yes. Is, this, is God going to um, work out his will even in this devastation, whatever this person is? Of course. But in the moments and months following loss, Kindness, empathy, being with, shutting your mouth and just showing up, um, listening to people cry, telling them that you're with them. That's Those are the most helpful things. You know, in small groups, gosh, this comes up so much where the desire to fix and correct and spiritualize um, just creeps in with the best of intentions. So someone will say, you know, I lost my job. And then for a second, maybe people be like, oh, wow, that's, that, that's really hard. Then you get the advice, you know. Well, I, when I lost I, my job. Right. Or why don't you try posting it on here? Have you done this? Have you done that? Um, this, you know, as I was preparing for our interview, um, God's so amazing with his timing on stuff. I have a neighbor that um, is not a believer that's been, we've been friends for 12 years, and his mother just passed away this week. I had just watched your your mm -hmm. um, materials, mm -hmm. and I, I even unbeknownst to myself, at least the at least oh yeah, because she just was, she was older yes, um, and now she's not in pain. And but oh, that's the other one they'll say at least at least he's I, not in pain, right? But because I've been educated, <laughs> yes. thank you, Kay. Um, the night before, when he called and said this is what had happened, I met him in the driveway and I just cried with him yeah. and. I stopped myself mm -hmm. after that, that line of, I'm so sorry, um, and what can I do? I stopped yeah. there. But I just think there's so many times, and I've been so guilty of it too, and I think because our culture is not good with, no. with messiness or awkwardness or discomfort. And so we or grief. Then, or grief. Yeah, or grief or loss or really any messy emotion, really. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in groups, that tendency can carry on. And it's so incumbent upon the leader and for us to train our leaders yes. to sit with it, not right. let people start quoting scripture at right. people as, right. as a weapon, right. um, but to really allow space to, to yeah. do it. Maybe pause and train our leaders to pause and pray f with them yeah. or let them cry instead yeah. of just moving ahead with the study. Well, the other thing that's hard that is... I think is genuinely difficult, and I don't have a real good solution for it, is it's part of the way we, it's part of our vernacular in the United States to say, how are you? Mm -hmm. You see somebody, you go, hi, hey, hey how, how you doing? How are you? It's, it's, a, it's like an extended hello. Yes. You know, it, it really is. doesn't mean how are you always. It just is, hey, how you doing? You know, it's, it's part of the greeting. Sure. But to a person who is grieving, who's in loss, that's a question that they don't know how to answer, and they feel pressured to either lie and right. say, "Oh, I'm doing do great," the socially acceptable to thing. do the socially acceptable right. thing, and you you're instantly put in this place of trying to evaluate: Did that person mean that as just an extended hello, Did and they, they really right. weren't? They're just being social. Oh, right. Were they? Are they really asking me how am I doing right now? And 
so you're, you're just, your brain is going, okay, do I just say fine and walk away? Do I say I'm not doing so well and, and have them realize, and then realize, oh, they weren't even really asking me how I was doing? Or right. if this person is asking, are they somebody I want to tell how I'm yes, doing? Yes, because not everybody needs to no, be part of that. No, not everybody. So your, your brain goes into all these different, you know, modes of figuring out what somebody means by how are you. So if you can have the self-awareness as you're talking to somebody who's going through grief or you know is in grief, to not ask the how are you question, mm -hmm. to find another way, even to just something at that point to just say, you've really been on my heart, you know, or I continue to pray for you um, in your family's loss. That allows them the opportunity to know that you sincerely are going beyond the, the social courtesy and in a group. Um, instead of saying, how are you, to be able to just say, man, you've been on my mind. Man, you've been on my heart. You've been in my prayers or something. Gives the person a little bit of permission to go, oh, they really do care about how I'm feeling. And then they can tell you or not tell you, but, but you've done something. You've removed that very hard thing of how are you. One last thing on this, um, and I know there's other questions, but... Um, when people say, oh, I know how you feel. Oh, my gosh. I want to slap them. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> because the only people who know how I feel um, is God. Yeah. Nobody else on this planet knows exactly how I feel, right. not even my husband. And sure. I can't even say to him, I know how you feel. Because you're different people. Because we're different people. And, and the only people besides that who come even close are other parents who lost a mentally ill child after decades who then took their lives with a gun. I mean, it gets very narrow Isn't as to who it is. And that's what I'm saying. It's, it's, so there really isn't. So to say, I know how you feel, is, is, a, is a conversation dead end as far as I'm concerned. And then if they say, when they find out that I, my son died by suicide, and they say, I know how you feel. My grandmother died last year. What? Yes. <laughs> oh, no. Or my dog died. Oh, okay, I'm so sorry you do yeah. that. You, you've had yeah. people say such... And again, they think they're trying to, ha they think they're... That's joined. outrageous. Yeah, well, <laughs> yes. We wound each other. We, we <laughs> wound each other uh, unintentionally, but we, we really need to have serious conversations about grief and loss and, and, um, and how, to, how to manage it and cope with it and, and be, be free and willing to grieve. It's okay. Grief is good. And I think that does take us letting our um, training and letting... People understand that that's it's okay. Um, we used to wear black armbands, right. you know, and people had a year of mourning, and right. so you you knew if you saw somebody with a black armband or they're wearing all black, they're in grief. So you modified how you talked to them or what you expected. All of those vestiges of external grieving are gone, right. and so you just have to be aware that every single person you meet could be dealing with grief, and to be mm -hmm. gentle and tender um, as you as you walk into the the house, if you will, right. of their souls. It's not even, um, not, it extends so much past grief. Um, it deals with anxiety, with fear, just right. get over it right. kind of idea right. behind it. So uh, what happens in small group uh, a lot is where we have people with mental illness um, and they're on that spectrum somewhere. Um, they're either the you know over talkers, the super needy, and in the church world, and I don't even like this phrase, but everyone that's listening to this will know it because we yeah. use it so often. You know, extra care required, the right. ECRs, right. Um, and people kind of cringe because we know that they're they can be um, difficult for a leader to lead, and we've worked hard um, in in our church environment. I've tried to say you know these people that are more difficult can be a blessing because it's going to stretch your leadership in ways that. Um, people that are more 
together uh, or have their, you know, haven't right. experienced some of that stuff um, and are wired more, more easily uh, is not going to give your group to care for someone, but it's a hard sell, okay? <laughs> because oh, people people want their groups to be smooth. Absolutely. Um, and so it's tough to train our leaders to say, you know, and, and the other thing, which is totally legitimate, is that our leaders will say to us, at what point do they need something beyond what me as, you know, I'm a contractor by day, I'm a small group leader once a week, um, I can pray for them and, and love them, but I'm not a mental health person. I don't, how do I, how do we read the signs of when, it's beyond what a regular small yeah, group can those do. Are, those are great questions. Um, there was a lot there, so I'll try to... I'm sorry. No, no, I'm no. So I'm sorry just, for the compound no, question. <laughs> yes. Okay, which part of that question shall I try to address first? Um, I'm thinking of the difference between, for instance, I've been part of a um, Beth Moore study group at mm -hmm. church. And so they said, there's hundreds of women. We're divided into small groups. That is not my primary small group. Sure. Um, and so that may be a group that I'm only together with for 13 weeks, mm -hmm. you know, or 12 weeks or whatever. So they're not people that I'm necessarily investing an awful lot of myself right. in because I have a primary small group where I'm committed to for life. Well, that's a... Your primary small group is your um, your life together group. Absolutely. Whereas a Beth Moore, we have you know a lot of those. That's more of a class and more of a, a learning environment. But you're coupled in, in what right. in a group. So it's a mid size where there is some connectivity, but right. your, your expectation is not going to be you're going to walk through life with me. Expectation right. is we're going to walk through three months right. and learn together and grow together. And so in that kind of a setting, I'm more of a deal with it, you know, and and not necessarily try to address an awful lot of what's going on because I know it's a short-lived sure. commitment. So if it's a short-lived kind of a, of a small group put together for a campaign or right. a Bible study or something, then I think you just you manage it the best you can. You know that they're either going to talk too much or they're going to dominate the conversation and you use all your skills and training right. that you've gotten <laughs> through small group network and... Um, and, and do the best for the whole group. If it's a, if it's a longer type commitment and somebody begins to um, show signs of, uh, of like I'm showing, that, that lack of resilience, maybe stress, depression, anxiety, um, there's great resources that we have here at Saddleback. There's great resources out there on so many mental health websites that I can give to you, you know, at the end or you can include sure. on, on, your, on your website or whatever, but, um, or in another, however you get that information out, but there really are resources. If you're worried about somebody maybe as being a danger to themselves or to others, um, then that's the point I would definitely go to the leadership, you know, right. of the church and let them know and, um, you know, obviously find out the best you can what's going on sure. in that person's life. And then if you're worried about them, you feel like something is, is of danger or they're declining. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it also depends on if they're willing to get help yeah. or if they're not willing to get help. If they're willing to get help, there are great resources. And, and your church needs to be equipped with uh, a list of, of what are the mental health resources in our community and who are the sure. recommended psychiatrists or psychologists or licensed counselors that our church mm -hmm. recommends. That Every church should have that. And a volunteer can, at the very least, go through the phone book and pull out some right. of those numbers so that it's there for, you know, in smaller churches to refer to. Um, so if the person is willing to get help, you can actually help them get help. If the person either isn't willing or doesn't recognize, mm -hmm. and sometimes people don't recognize. That's, that's sticky. They one. don't recognize it. They don't see that they're declining or that their behavior is problematic. Um, then it's then it becomes more of a, um, that's, I think, stickier, and there's not a one-size-fits-all right. answer. Right. But ignoring it, I would say, is not the way to go. 
you know, ignoring it, especially if you see somebody declining. Because unfortunately, like when people take their lives, um, I hear all too often family members, friends, you'll read that they'll say, we had no idea. Right, right. I didn't see any signs. Yes. I didn't know that this could happen. I, did, I knew that, that he was feeling sad or down, but I didn't know he felt this bad. And, um, and so to be aware of the signs of, of depression and anxiety that's reaching a place of encouraging um, people to get help and to um, making the commitment to stand with them. Sometimes if people are uh, schizophrenic, you know, they're not in touch with reality right. or they're having... Um, Especially if they're off their meds. Yeah, if they're off their medication or they're having, you know, delusions sure. or they're not really in touch with reality, then then it becomes even, you know, all these things keep kind of ramping up in seriousness right. Right. of um, deal with it because it's short term, um, then all the way to, you know, trying right. to hear what they're saying, get them help if they're willing. If they're not willing, um, again, bringing it to the leadership and uh, maybe their family members and see. And on rare occasions, I'm sure there are places where someone has to be removed mm -hmm. from a group. Right, right. But it's such a tricky thing because we have to balance the our human need for connection and being not abandoned right. in our moments of brokenness right. um, and being aware of what the rest of the group needs for help. Um, so like I said, there is not it a one-size there's not a one-size-fits-all solution. There's a couple of really good books that I think that everybody, every pastor, every small group should have on the shelf. One of them is called um, Grace for the Afflicted by Matthew Stanford. Um, it's a great introduction to mental illness, signs, what you can do. It's written, it's a Christian book. He's, it's, it's a fabulous book that everybody should have. Um, so at least the small groups pastor right, right. or person in charge should should have that awareness that they can pass down to the other small group leaders. Another one is Amy Simpson's book, Troubled Minds. Oh, yeah. yeah. Really good book. Um, and there's an interview that you did with her as well, I think. Mm -hmm. um, we'll attach that as well because she's, she's um, been talking about this a lot in the context of, of group life. Um, I think one of the things we've done, just as a suggestion too, is um, to have... We have a few a few groups where the leaders are mature. The leaders are willing to deal with messiness. Yes, um, they meet at the church, so that um, if someone is at the level where they could potentially be violent or be mm -hmm. um, difficult, that we have a, a place where they can have their need for community. That's so great. But it's understood that this is going to be kind of a ragtag sure um, group well, that's going to have a little more control just because we've got some because of some what's mix. going on. Mm -hmm. And well, so and I things. think that this points out. I should have said this. I think this points out the difference between a support group and a small group. Right. Because right. there are sometimes when people are in some pretty bad places. What they need probably more than a small group right. is a support group. Right. And so to help people find a support group. Sure. And just about every, I really do believe that every church can have at least one support group. And, and we recommend that if you're going to start a support group, that it probably be a general one for depression and anxiety, which are the things that right. probably common. affect most people with, who are struggling with sure. a mental illness. And so, as you say, with a mature leader who's, who's willing right. to talk about mental health and mental illness, but still there's community. Right. So a support group rather than a small group right. like divorce is a care. good option. Or yeah. celebration recovery yeah, or something it's, it's like that. It's a good that. option for somebody right. who's not functioning very well in a small group, but there's still a place there's for help. them yeah, to get help and support and right. prayer. And but I love the, the, the heart, though, that you're communicating, which we so need to hear, is that we don't abandon people. Absolutely. Um, and we don't because we think they're going to take more of the resources and not give back. I, I think that that mentality is what um, I see this um, 
this conference and with the work you're doing, that's the mentality well, you're trying you know, to change. Here, here's the thing, Carolyn. When we're feeling good and our lives are doing well and we're strong and we're healthy for the most part, we can't envision ourselves ever being in a place of great need. And so when we, when we see other people who are in great need, we don't associate them with ourselves and we think not in terms of what would I want if this were me, mm -hmm. what would I want if this was my husband that was struggling or my I wife can't. or my daughter or my son or my sister or my brother. We, we look at it just from our point of view of this is uncomfortable and you're creating problems in this group, so please get out of this group. Instead of looking at it, if I was the person who was in the vulnerable, mm -hmm. weak position, how would I want to be treated? Right. How would I want my church to come around me? What would I want the message to be from my church? And when we look at it through that lens, we're going to take better care of people. We're going to offer more options, and we're not going to abandon them. Because just like we would not want to be abandoned if we were the ones right. uh, on the bottom in right. that moment, flat on our backs, um, we don't want to do that to other people. It looks like to love people like ourselves. Um, well, I could talk to you for hours, but we need to wrap up. Um, so tell us a little bit about this conference, um, the mental health and the church. It's coming up really soon. There's been nothing of this kind ever as far as um, I've seen. And the um, speakers and the workshops, it sounds like a who's who of mental health world. Um, my sister's a psychologist, and she tells me that is who it is. It's, it's a who's who. <laughs> it um, and it's just, it's so incredible that you guys are doing this. Um, so who should attend this conference? Who is it geared for? And it, what, what do you hope people will walk away with? Great, um, great questions. It is geared for primarily people who are living with mental illness and their families. Um, if we have two prime targets, they always tell me you can't hit two targets at the same time, but we're going to try. Um, so we'll see if I can prove them wrong. Um, is for people in, living with mental illness and their families and church leaders, pastors, church leaders, anybody in the faith community, because is if we can equip pastors and mm -hmm. church leaders, 71% of church leaders say that they are not equipped to deal with mental wow. health issues. A wow. study by um, Matt Stanford, again, a few years ago uh, showed that. And um, so, well, we can do something about that. We can help equip the church to care for and, and nurture and support people living with mental illness. So we're aiming for that. To, so anybody who's a church leader needs to come. And, um, and we're offering it um, free to one person if they're in Celebrate Recovery. Mm -hmm. if, they're, if they've got wow. somebody in Celebrate Recovery, it's free to veterans and current military um, people need scholarships they can ask the early bird special ends very soon but it's still cheap for a three-day conference oh, yeah. so people living with mental illness and their families for anybody in the faith community clergy small group leaders pastors um, and then as a kind of third target would be any any mental health professional particularly mm -hmm. those who are looking how to integrate faith into their practice to nonprofits it's uh, well yeah or just you know psychiatrists psychologists right. social workers licensed right. marriage and family therapists those who are dealing with mm -hmm. on a daily basis those living with mental illness and have a faith and they want to know how mm -hmm. do I incorporate my faith more fully so it's more into, holistic as you talk yeah about. a more holistic care um, as you said it is sort of a who's who's pantheon of speakers <laughs> but if I told you most of them you wouldn't know it's like if we held a sports conference and somebody told me Kay we've got this person yeah. this person and this person and we're so excited because they're just the best and I would go Wow, that's so cool. I have no idea who that person is, but I'll take your word for it. So it's the same kind of thing. Unless you're in the mental health right. world, you might not know how um, fantastic these, mm -hmm. these folks are. But they're the best dealing with trauma, 
PTSD, children, um, equipping families, anybody who's teaching Sunday school or working with youth, there's going to be, um, you know, a pre-workshop, pre-conference, you know, um, for them, suicide prevention. Um, it's the intersection of mental illness with homelessness, substance abuse, um, the jails. Wow. Um, it's vulnerable people, wow. you know. To, so it's it's very really comprehensive. Wow. And the overarching theme is what can the church do and say, and what can every church do? I think that your listeners might uh, assume that because Saddleback is a large church, well, of course they can do that. <laughs> but we've broken it down to the lowest level we can think of. I mean, we've tried to put the cookies on the bottom shelf of what can every church do right. with no money, no training, and no staff. Wow. So, so they're going to get to walk away They're going to walk away something. with that kind of information. So if you're a tiny church, you're a home fellowship of 15 or you've got 50 or 350 or 1,000 or whatever, you're going to learn what you could do at your church's size and location. So it's, it's for everybody. Wow, so this is beyond just this one conference. What are, can oh. you give a sneak peek as to what else you're working on related to this area? We, uh, we're, we're just finishing putting together a toolkit for what every church can do. Um, it's a Hope for Mental Health, uh, Hope for Mental Health Ministry Toolkit. Wait, I'm <laughs> saying it wrong. Hope for Mental Health Ministry Starter. You'll see it on It's, it's going to be unveiled uh, at the conference, and okay. it'll be available on Saddleback Resources. But it's going to have messages from me and Rick. Um, it'll have, um, you know, why your church should have a mental a health ministry. Starter. Yep, it's got a pathway to how you actually begin. It's got um, a journal for people who are living with mental illness. It's got a resource wow. guide that explains some basics about mental illness and wow. terms. It's got, like I said, sermon series. Mm -hmm. It's got the, um, the weekend that we did for our students on, on mental illness. Mm -hmm. It's got the, their messages, their right. graphics, their games. It's got everything on there. So it's a, it's a pretty inclusive um, how do you get started for somebody who goes, yeah, I'd like to, but I have no idea where to even begin. Wow, that'll be a great resource for the church. Um, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and your heart. Um, it just kind of shines through. Is, do you have any final words for, our, um, for small group pastors and point leaders? Yeah, I would say when I became an um, advocate for people living with HIV um, and AIDS 13 years ago, it was a really hard sell to tell communities here in the United States that they needed to care about people living with HIV because in the United States there's only like a million people. I mean, it's a lot, but it's only a million. And we have medicines. And, and there's medication. And so we don't look at HIV the same way that the rest of the world does. So it was a really hard sell. When I talk about mental illness, there are 60 million Americans right now. So as you said, one in five living with a mental illness. So you already know somebody sure. who has a mental illness um, or family member. It could be you. Um, and so to, to do better what we're already doing, you're already talking to, ministering to people with mental illness. Let us help equip you to do an even better job of it. And at the bottom line, there's always hope. There is hope for mental health, and I really believe the church I think it's because of the church. I think when the church um, does what the church needs to do, we can make a gigantic difference in the lives of people who are suffering. Amen. I can't wait to see what God's going to do through this conference, through your continual work. Um, 
And you can connect with Kay on her blog. It's kaywarren.com on Twitter at kaywarren1, along with her, um, her Facebook page. And she posts a fair amount of interact. You interact a lot, actually, on your Facebook. I try. Um, with personal, personal comments and stuff. It's actually very, very sweet. Um, and we'll, of course, attach links on our Small Group Network website, along with our Facebook page. And if you have any questions for Kay, we'll forward those to her as well. So please um, interact with one another on this critical issue and help our groups and our churches come alongside our brothers and sisters with mental health issues and be a light for our community and bring hope to our communities. So thank you for listening to Group Talk. See you next time. Thank you for listening in to Group Talk, a monthly podcast centered around strategic ideas for leaders of small groups. If you like what you hear, we encourage you to visit our website, smallgroupnetwork.com, and to also interact with this month's podcast guest on our Facebook page.